Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the TT podcast. Nine stages in, and we've reached the first rest day of the Tour de France. We've had tears, small crashes, big crashes, a brief protest, legal action, some serious GC shakeups, and two signature Cavendish sprints. Here with me to look back over the first week and a bit of the tour is my co-host Tom. Tom, how are you? And uh, and where are you? Uh, yeah, uh, hello to everyone from Porto in Portugal. That's that's where I am at the moment. I've managed to get myself a, a week away, which has been nice. Thankfully, no quarantining needed because I've had both vaccines. So that was a bit of a relief when we got here. Uh, and yeah, I've been watching the Volta of Francia or whatever they call it here. I can't remember what it was on TV, but my, my Portuguese isn't that good. Um. <laughs> We're going to have to jog our memories a bit here because we're going to go right back to stage one, which was nine days ago now. Um, yeah. Let's go straight into it because we've got a, a fair bit of drama to, to run through here, Tom. Um, stage one, a bit of Alaphilippe magic, straight away lift off into the tour. Um, we had two mass piles up. Froome was down within hours of the tour starting. A few abandons early on. Um I've never seen crashes like I have in that first stage with the mass pileups. But let's focus, first of all, on Julian Alaphilippe. Yes, I thought you'd want to. I can see the picture of him behind your head now. Um, so, yeah, from my point of view, really annoying that you did it because I didn't want him to win just because I knew you did. Uh, and obviously a very impressive performance. I'm not really sure tactically what everyone else was doing, just letting him go, because I can't believe that no one could have even tried to respond to a move that early on the on the final climb but he went away very explosively as he does and once he's away it is very difficult to bring him back and obviously they didn't he made it look quite easy in the end i was expecting him to attack later but he held it for about two and a bit kilometers and you can see the grimace in his face his pain face is is very obvious when he when he brings that one out um and i was delighted to see him to go into yellow um, obviously that didn't last for particularly long or nowhere near as long as I would have liked. Um, Probably always quite nice to swap the rainbow jersey for the yellow jersey. So uh... <laughs> Not many have had that privilege. Let's talk a little bit about what really the headlines were on that stage, which were the crashes. Um, you had the classic one that has, seems to have... Infu- and I'll tell you what, I find it very interesting when cycling news infiltrates mainstream media, but this is a story that really has, which was the spectator with the sign that brought down Tony Martin and about 60 or 70 of his peers in the peloton. That crash was brutal. But there are a few other ones on that stage um, which seem really bad. I mean, to give an example, AG2R had six of their riders fall twice in the first stage. And uh, Mark Soler effectively broke both of his arms. He broke both of his elbows during that stage and rode on to the finish. Obviously, we know what caused the big one, but I, I don't know what the rest of it is. Maybe just a bit of tension and nerves in the, in the pack. Um, I think road furniture has been blamed. Uh, obviously, the weather wasn't great in Brittany for the first few days. But yeah, I guess it's just everyone fighting for position all the time in the in the first week of a Grand Tour. And eventually, some people have to lose out. Some people get pushed to the side and come off their bikes, basically. Do you think, and I'll, I'll ask you this question after I've read out this quote from Mark Soler from the first stage. Um, so the quote is, he basically gave an interview saying what it was like in the crashes on the first stage and what it was like for him on the road. 
And there was a bit that I found very poignant, which he says, the mechanic pulled me up by my armpits and I sat on the side of the road. I was really dizzy. There were still 50 kilometers to go. They told me to try to go on, but I don't know how I did. I couldn't change gear or brake. When I got to the finish, I was worried about the time limit, but I couldn't even get my clothes off in the bus. They had to cut them off with scissors. Then when we got to the medical truck, they confirmed my injuries, which, as I said, was two broken elbows, uh, which is both of your elbows or all of your elbows. Tom, do you think that the sport sets a dangerous precedent with regards to injuries and kind of this valiant image that it projects of carrying on even when you're injured? Not what, what you said there that worries me, not so much the elbow stuff. If he can manage the pain and feel he can get to the end, then that's down to the rider as an individual. But if he says he's dizzy and that you're looking at head injuries and stuff as well, that's where you've got to be so careful. I can't believe they've let him ride on after that because you've got to be so vigilant of anything else, you know, the collarbones, the arms, the hips that we've seen people ride on with. I think that is just down to the rider's own judgment. But when it's a head injury, someone else has got to come in and make that call, surely. Yeah, I, I understand what you mean. Uh, I think what always rings true when I think about this is how Geraint Thomas once rode an entire Tour de France with a broken pelvis mm. and went on to win the Tour a few years later. So, I mean, he's obviously, it's not caused any particular long-term damage, but I mean, that is one case of many. Um, I think now we'll be seeing, especially with the protocols with head injuries in the sport, which were brought in last year, um, which dictate that a rider cannot continue when they've been confirmed to have had some sort of serious concussion on the road. Yeah. Um, we'll see more and more of that brought in, I think now, especially with the UCI clamping down on safety rules. We'll come on to more of that when we get onto stage three. Stage two, however, is where your guy, Mathieu van der Poel, <laughs> announced himself on the big stage. Yeah. I mean, we all, obviously, it was all what we, what we all thought would happen on the first day. It didn't. So he, I don't know, just to have the complete faith in your own abilities that you can attack for bonus seconds, come back into the bunch and then still outkick everyone on the final climb again. That's just incredible. We were talking as it was happening live and he went and he got um, obviously reeled back in over the top of the uh, murder Britannia. And we all just thought that was a bit of a futile attack that um, he'd maybe misjudged. And it turned out he knew exactly what he was doing and rode himself into the yellow jersey quite convincingly. Yeah, it seems to be a, a bit of a masterclass, really. He'd obviously sat down in the hotel the night before, planned it mm. all out, done the maths, got the paper out, you know, adding, Absolutely, subtracting what he needs. None of none of us seemed to consider that he was going for the bonus seconds over the penultimate climb to get himself into yellow. Uh, we, we all thought that was a move for the stage win that wasn't paying off. And it seemed everyone on commentary thought the same, and then he got to the line, he did it, and we thought, oh... Oh, that was incredible, actually. <laughs> but I think when you look back at the highlights, you see that he goes over the finish line the first time around, picks up those bonus seconds. <clears throat> then he does look around and kind of he ease up. up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Matty van der Poel is not the sort of rider that looks around when he attacks. So it kind of showed that that is not, you know, that wasn't the one that he was hoping would stick. He was then going to reel it back in, well, let them reel it back in and then try and win, again, do it again, which he did. Gave a very teary interview afterwards. Um mainly obviously with the story with his grandfather, who, if you are not, if you haven't followed the sport that closely in recent years, his grandfather was Raymond Poulidor, um, came second, known as the eternal second in the tour, never won the tour, never wore the yellow jersey, but is considered one of the tour's greatest ever riders. Van der Poel wrote a very important page in the history books of the sport 
and also the history books of his family when he wore the yellow jersey there. Um, interestingly, the first non-World Tour rider to wear the yellow jersey in 10 years. And Tom, do you know who the last person to wear the yellow jersey was? It wasn't a World Tour rider. I think I do. I think I saw this stat. Uh, and I think it was Tom Avocla. Correct. It was. Yeah. Uh, riding for Europe car, I guess it would have been, wouldn't it? It would have been, yeah, 2011, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. What I want to ask you is, do you think this, that well, that stage win in particular on stage two, where he went into the yellow jersey, do you think that was as defining a win in his career as his Amstel gold win and also his Strada Bianchi win earlier this season? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he obviously then, he went on to have six days in the yellow jersey. He obviously held it uh, through the time trial, which I'm sure we'll get onto in a minute. Uh, and I don't think there's really anything anything better than that. A, a win, you know, on the, on your second day ever in the Tour de France, and then a week in the yellow jersey is surely can't really be unless unless you're a GC guy and actually win the Tour overall. I don't see how you can top that. Yeah, this is why I was kind of glad where he didn't win on the first stage because I've been telling quite a lot of people I've been like, look, Van der Poel's really good but he's never ridden a three-week Grand Tour. I don't know how he'll perform there. Um, and if he had then come into the Tour de France and his first ever stage in the Tour de France, he'd won it and gone into yellow, then I would basically look like a real fool. So not quite him winning. Him winning on the second stage has not quite solidified that, but uh, I'm sure he's not too, too gutted about that. Stage three, as I say previously, this is where we had crashes galore. Now I'm going to read out a note I made on my phone so I didn't forget what had happened. And I say, G crash with 140 to go, set the tone for it. Maduas crash, then Primoz crash, then Pog brackets, Haig crash, then Caleb Ewan slide tackled Sagan in sprint. It was uh, a bit of a royal rumble off a stage. Yeah, and... I don't know. What the, the, the the Grant Thomas crash is just G B G, isn't it? That's what he does. He falls off his bike all the time, hurts himself, and somehow carries on. Uh, dislocated his shoulder, had it put back in at the roadside, and then finished the stage, as you do. Um, again, everything else goes back to what I said earlier. It was obviously a pretty technical run-in for the first sprint stage as well. So everyone's completely on edge. The GC guys. Uh, are just still desperate to be at the front because there was no cutoff point either, I think, for where the times would be taken from. And look, there's, you know, there's a road that's probably four men wide where 12 guys want to be on the front. So it's just obviously not going to happen. And um, well, we saw what happened. Everyone came off the bike. There's been a lot of debate about this that I've been reading on social media. And it's kind of been interesting to see how that debate has evolved. So it started very much by saying, look, these routes are not safe. We shouldn't be having these technical run-ins on a sprint stage where they're going 60 kilometers, 70 kilometers an hour into a small village. Then it went on to say, actually, maybe the riders have some sort of responsibility in this because you know, it's their duty to ride within their capacity on a bike. If they're on a road that simply cannot merit a 70 kilometer an hour speed, then don't try and do that, especially not when you're riding inches off somebody else's wheel. Then it kind of evolved into the idea that actually maybe this is due to the radios they have in their ears and the pressure they're getting from the team car, especially the GC guys, as you're leading into the last 10, five kilometers, 
to say, right, be right at the front of the pack so you don't get involved in these crashes. And they're not that aware. There's a lot of pressure anyway. There's a lot of hustle and bustle. And when you don't, what you don't need in that situation is your DS screaming at you and your team into your ear. Um, now, I don't know what's going to come out of that. And I don't really know where I think the blame lies, if there is. I think it's very different on each crash. The Caleb Ewan one, for example, it was just a sprint around a little corner. He clipped Malia's wheel. Um, again, the Roglic one just seems to be that they ran out of road and he bumps into Colbrelli. Um, I'm not sure how much of it you can blame on the route itself, especially when the riders have known of that route for months um, and only kind of complained about it the morning or evening before. But yeah, it's an, it's an interesting debate and we'll see kind of how that develops. And maybe in the future, there'll be more fuss made about kind of corners or roundabouts or little things in stages rather than just, you know, the length of stages and how hilly they are. Yeah, for me, the, the Ewan one was obviously the one that stuck out because that was a real high-speed crash right at the line. So that uh, just looked the most brutal. And I, I'm i not sure the riders have done much wrong there. Ewan and, uh, well, Sagan did nothing wrong. He just got completely taken out, as he said. Um, but it seems madness to me to have a bunch sprint like that on a descent coming off a climb, a little summit at 4K to go. And the closing speeds between the riders are just they're, they're going so they're going fast in any bunch sprint but coming off a downslope like that as well it's just un, it, it makes it unnecessarily quick and when it does go wrong it goes spectacularly wrong see this is whenever anyone mentions kind of downhill sprints or whenever i see a downhill sprint in the road book i immediately think of that fabio jacobson crash in the tour of poland mm. which was made kind of worse by the fact that they were going so fast because it was a downhill sprint um and as I said, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see those really booted out of the sport in, in the next couple of years. Um, as a result, obviously, of all the crashes, stage four started with a very short-lived rider protest. Andrew Greipel stops the pack. Then Philippe says, come on, guys, let's get this rolling. Get on with it. Yeah. Um, we then, the stage goes on. Uh, they neutralize the first sort of 10K going at the speed that you and I would go if we were going flat out. Um, Brent Van Moor then decides it's time for him to make a name for himself. Described by Thomas de Ghent as the new Thomas de Ghent, almost did a Thomas de Ghent, but on the line, his glory was pipped by none other than Mark Cavendish. Tom, talk me through the sensations of seeing Mark Cavendish winning at the Tour de France once again. Well, as you know, I didn't see it live. I was absolutely gutted because I didn't give a chance none of us did and um well he did it uh so yeah i mean had the whatsapps coming in through you i was just sat there refreshing twitter refreshing twitter because i was in the airport waiting for my flight and i just couldn't believe it when i was reading it, it was absolutely incredible but i had completely written him off um you know he's only at the tour on a sort of technicality not a technicality but through because their team's main sprinter has injured himself three weeks before. And yeah, it looks very ominous for the rest of the sprinters in the pack because Cav blew them away as well. It, it was like watching his early early sprints where with whatever, the kick from 250 metres to go, he, the, the rate of acceleration away from the rest of the field is just staggering. Like when he was in his prime, no one could get near him. And that's 
this is what it looked like again. Was it the two things I wanted to say on this were on our preview podcast, I had said that I didn't think he was in the top kind of 10 sprinters in the pack at the moment. Certainly not when you've got the likes of Damar, Ewan, um, whoever else in there sprinting at their best. But Cavendish looks genuinely the most powerful off the lot of them. That combined with the fact that events seem to have just fallen into his hands, quite fortunately. Obviously, Ewan crashing out on the stage before. Um, Alperson not really knowing who they're riding for in sprints or kind of having to reshuffle their train every day. Um, Michael Morku setting him up beautifully each time. But even in the intermediate sprints, they're getting a bit of practice in there. Um, if we look kind of ahead to stage six on this one and kind of compare them, it's the exact same situation. Events fall very well for him. Wout van Aert gets boxed in. Uh, he picks an, But then that combined with the fact that he picks an excellent wheel on Tim Malir, you've got that combination of experience and good fortune, which is how sprinters are going to win these days. Uh, but he still, yeah, he, he just seems to, you know, come out, come out the slipstream. It's like watching a Formula One car when they've just got, they come into that, come out of the, um, you know, into the clean air and they've just got an extra 10K an hour on um, on everyone else. And he just, go, he just breezed straight past them in the green jersey as well, which is still holding. I think he could be a contender for it. You know, that's one of my things I've got noted at the end here is that, could Cav be going for green now? I mean, it wasn't something that we thought at the start, and I would be surprised if it was something that he was targeting at the start. But he's obviously he feeling good. After the events of today, which, again, I'm sure we'll get on to, he's obviously in a lot better form than people thought because there's some two or three, you know, the big sprinters have really suffered in the mountains a lot more than Cav has, which must be a positive. Yeah, well, this obviously, obviously is a positive because there's there's two or three of those sprinters aren't uh, Arno Demar, Brian Cocker, um, and Tim Merlier as well. Merlier pulled out mid stage today, and the, mm-hmm. the other two, those two French guys, didn't make the time cut today. When Cav was inside the time cut by about ninety seconds, timed it perfectly. So I mean, you'd say the only other one in that pack that's going to contest him for sprints is probably Philipson. There's Philipson there, and then you're looking at Buhani, Buhani and Wout van Aert if he fancies a sprint. Yeah, but Wout van Aert isn't looking particularly geared and, up to the sprints. I think he's looking more at the time trial later on in the in the yeah. tour. We've got about Case Bolt as well, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look at that group, yeah, Cavendish at half capacity is better than most of them. Nas Buhani is doing very well at coming second and third which is, yeah. you know, great for him and for his Palmares mm-hmm. and whatever UCI points he's trying to pick up, but he's not going to get much recognition for them in the long run. Um, I'm not going to tempt fate here, Tom, but I think it's very likely that Cavendish sets a certain new record by two weeks' time. If he, he could do it this week. He could do it this coming week. Yeah. There's three flat stages this coming week into Valence, Nîmes and Carcassonne. Uh, which he could easily win all three. Yeah, uh, I was well straight after the. We're recording this on the Sunday night. So the rest day on Monday, Tuesday stage, pan flat there for the taking. Takes him, and you know, then he's got all the motivation to get over the mountains because he only needs one more after that, doesn't he? Yeah, you know what? While I've been sat here talking to you, Tom, I've really convinced myself that he's going to do it because I was just thinking the only thing that's going to help the only the only one that's really going to contend with him is Jasper Philipson. But Jasper Philipsen and Alperson Phoenix have benefited a lot from Vanderpol pulling on the front into the end of stages. That's how they've won the sprint for 
Malia earlier on. Um, so yeah, I've, I'm convinced, Tom. <clears throat> okay, I'm not going to contest you on that one. I, I reckon you can do it as well. <laughs> Let's talk stage five, which was the time trial. Now we knew this was going to be decisive and we knew we were going to see GC shakeups on this. Um, what we didn't expect, I think, was Pogacar to crush it to the extent that he did, uh, especially when kind of a week prior he had come third in his national time trial and then wins this flat time trial by 30 seconds or whatever it was. Well, again, I think the crashes played a part. Probably some of the guys who thought they would figure a lot more towards the front end of this TT were, you know, just sort of like the walking wounded um, Rogvich, especially. Uh, we saw it was that picture the uh, night before came out with him. It was just more bandages than skin at one point, wasn't it? And um, Geraint Thomas is obviously another man who used to be able to smash out the time trial and is probably carrying, riding through quite a bit of pain at the moment. But, I mean, yeah, Pogacar's still beaten some really good time trial, time trial specialists like Wout Benart. And uh, I think Stefan Kung was one who was um, really tipped for this one because I, I'm sure I remember really as well that the, uh, the time trial route went through Mark Madio's hometown. So the FDJ boys were all going to have to be absolutely on it. Well, it was one that Kung was really targeting. Uh, sure. I think him looking at this Tour de France, he was like, right, let me get through these first few stages unscathed and then I'm going to smash that time trial, which he did. And it must be so frustrating for him. Time trial specialists spend so much time on his TT bike perfecting it. He knows those roads well. They're not far from, I don't think they're far from uh, where he'd train with the team. And mm. um, this freak, Tadej Pogacar, just comes in and smashes his time. Uh, same with Wout Van Aert. Freak is the right, right word for Pogaccio because there's just nothing he can't do at this point. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if he wins a bunch sprint at some point. Well, he has that. He won a bunch sprint in. Um, oh, did he win a bunch in some classic last year? Very no, he didn't. He won a sprint to the line in his when he in his first stage of the previous tour. That wasn't called that a bunch sprint. That was a very reduced group off of, off a of descent. Oh yeah, okay, that might be what I was thinking of. Um, anyway, on the time trial, even though Pogaccio you know, crushed everybody and put in this unbelievable ride. I think the real hero from the day was Mathieu van der Poel. Left everything on the road. There's that picture of him sat with his legs spread, kind of jaw pressed into his chest, nothing left, covered in sweat. Um, he does that every single time he rides. Uh, so yeah, he was the real star for me, especially when you consider that he doesn't even own a time trial bike uh, and had only ridden one time trial prior this year, which was in the Tour de Suisse where I think he came about 25th. Um, I read an interesting story as well the night before. So obviously he was in yellow and they weren't really suspecting that he'd have to defend the, top, the jersey at this point, but they realised it was an option. So they drove down to Andorra to meet Cameron Worth, who is a Ineos rider, uh, and borrowed a set of wheels from him. Drove them back up to Brittany, where the time trial was, uh, then spent all evening... Uh, tweaking the tweaking the uh, tweaking the bike, putting the wheels on, making sure his position was okay. They were up until midnight. Decided to keep Cameron Worth's back wheel, uh, use their own front wheel, and uh, it seems to really pay off for him. Yeah, incredible ride. He's obviously all the motivation there, and just just kept it basically uh, through you know 
earned him another, what, two, three days in the jersey because uh, there was a couple of flat stages, flat-ish stages that followed, or anyway, stages that weren't going to threaten the yellow jersey. And only finished, what, 0.8 of a second behind Wout Van Aert, who must be sick of seeing Mathieu van der Poel wherever he goes. But <laughs> having said that, the, the two of them lit it up, didn't they, the following day? Or was it the following day? Or the... Uh, Two days after. So yeah, it was stage seven, yeah. uh, which ended in Van der Poel, Van Aert, 1-2 on the GC, uh, which I don't yeah. think many would have predicted uh, on stage seven of this Tour de France. That was an exhilarating stage. You've got Matej Mohoric, who attacks with 86 kilometers to go. That manages to stick. That was when you had that super break. I mean, these are a lot more recent events, but it still seems like a little age ago where the super break with all the, well, some of the GC contenders... Some of them managed, some of them missed the split. Um, and Mark Cavendish. And Mark Cavendish was in there, of course. Um, monument, this was the one that was 250 kilometers. That's the one. Yeah. Monument length, ridden like a monument. Um, yeah, but you see the pace they rode at as well, though. The average speed was absolutely crazy. Um, I was really surprised to see that. It was, yeah, it was high 40s. They came in something like 20 minutes ahead of the, you know, the schedule that gets printed on the, uh, and they say, you know, this is where they'll be whenever based on yeah. average. They came in 20 minutes ahead of the fastest schedule. They went faster than the organizers ever thought they would go. Um, and, you know, there's a, whatever, a 30-man break goes up the road featuring the yellow jersey, how, however many for you past, uh, past Tour de France winners, how many, at least one, because I know Nibali was in there. Um, and... Yeah, it was just Mathieu van der Poel seems to have turned up to this Tour de France as, and just gone, that's it. I'm, it's full gas every day. Uh, and this has is, completely rewritten the rule book on how the first week of a Grand Tour should be raced. And I think that is the main takeaway from this first week of the Tour de France is that it has just been relentless. The yeah. attacking has been relentless. I mean, some of the riders treated the TT day as a bit of a rest day which probably meant that they, they could have it in them to go for these long ones on, on stages like this 250-kilometer one. But this was one that when we looked at the route, we thought that is going to be a dead stage. Nothing's going to happen. Some group's going to go off the road. The break's going to win. The GC is going to doddle in 20 minutes down, 15 minutes down, and there'll be no real-time gaps. Little did we know, obviously, we shouldn't have expected that because Vanderpol is in the race and he is going to want to be at the front whenever he can racing to the best of his ability there was so much going on you have him and Wout van Aert working together on the road to make time on the, on their rivals you've got Carapaz chasing going berserk behind like a bullet um Roglic got spat obviously this is because of his injuries nothing to do with I mean I don't think his I mean we, we didn't know much about his form going into it and this was something that we obviously we discussed on our preview episode Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much of it was his form and how much of it was just because of he went down very hard on that third stage. I hadn't once questioned his form, to be honest. I think we can trust him. The form was probably there. He just went over his handlebars three times in as many days or something. Yeah. And uh, the next day, he was basically done and dusted. He was spat out the back, smiling at the cameras, enjoying himself. Well, I don't know how much he was enjoying himself, but I think he was enjoying having the pressure taken off his shoulders. Um, yeah. I obviously owe him an apology because I've been telling everybody 
for the last two weeks that I think Roglic is going to win this Tour de France by at least two minutes. And we know That's how the curse. Up to our usual standard then. Yeah, and uh, obviously, as a result, he has now pulled out today. So that's no good. Um, stage eight as well was the one that this was yesterday at the time yes, of recording. Yeah. Dylan turns into Le Grand Bournon. Geraint Thomas gone as well. Um, Taddy Pogaccia, man. I just, I don't really know what there is left to say about him. We spoke, I what I really enjoyed, Thomas, when we spoke with James Shaw about this. And... Mm-hmm. He has obviously got experience of racing on the same roads with Pogacar at the time. And he made it so clear to us that this guy is just leagues above. Um, even in that Tour of Slovenia, which was a pretty star-studded lineup, he was leagues above. I wasn't expecting him to be leagues above at this Tour de France, but I have also can't remember the last time. And maybe it's because we've come so accustomed to seeing Grand Tours fought out by such narrow margins that now... We've got, well, at the GC as it stands, is Pogacar leading by two minutes to Ben O'Connor and then over five minutes to third place Rigoberto Uran. And I can only see that going out. I know it's obviously, again, he has been quite lucky in terms of not really crashing very hard when most of his rivals have. But I think even if that was the case, he just... I don't know how you're supposed to negate anything he does because you just you saw that stage yesterday he just he just rode away from the rest of the field like they weren't there and there's nothing anyone could do like he's capable of completely blowing out other teams all of their riders on his own well you had all these these guys up the road in kind of drips and drabs and Pogacar just went off kind of ticking them off as he bridged the gap to the front of the race just like, yeah, right, you that's you overtaken, that's you overtaken. It must be so demoralizing for them when they've given their whole career to this. And this Slovenian lad with his tufts of hair coming through his helmet, 22 years old, whips straight round them and says, Okay, well, I'll see you on the descent because I'm gonna ease up a bit because I don't want to hurt myself. And I've got yeah. about six minutes to play with here. Um, well, that was it. It was, it was Dylan Dylan Turns did say that he didn't realize that Pogacar had got within 12 seconds of him on their coming up that final climb. So he said if he had known. He probably would have given up. Yeah, we, and I mean, we saw it to get today again on the uh, ninth stage. Uh, ben O'Connor, excellent win into Teen, made us dream. Well, made me dream anyway of a yellow jersey, brown shorts combination. Um, I think at one point he was maybe the virtual leader, but, um, bit, but uh, yeah, Tade decided. Oh no, right, it's playtime now. Left everybody in the dust again. Hell for leather on the incline. The guy is just perpetually sending it, and that's the only way that I can describe it at this Tour de France. And I, there's this idea that at some point he's going to blow, but I don't think he will. And last year's Tour de France, if that's anything to go by, which it definitely is, shows that you know in the final week of a Grand Tour, he is just as fresh as he is at the start. No, I honestly think he could win by about 10 minutes. It could be one of the most comprehensive victories we've seen in years. As we said, he's leagues above the rest of the field. And all of his main rivals are injured as well. (laughs) Should we look ahead to what he has to face coming this week? Yeah, well, yeah, we've got another Mark Cavendish procession on Tuesday, haven't we? And then uh, some boring mountain stages after that. Right, let's backtrack there. Wednesday is what I thought was going to be the best stage of this tour. 
Yeah, yeah. That's our... Now that Cam's back in form, we only care about the bunch sprints. It's interesting because I'm kind of finding that. I'm finding that the GC is basically done now. Um, yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how the likes of Jonas Vingegaard can, you know, put his stamp on this tour, see if he can get a podium. That's basically the only narrative there. Uh, unless yeah. Pogacar has a bad crash, which I'm not sure he will because he's riding very, you know, he's looking very solid. Um, Wednesday on the Vontu. What upsets me about this stage, Tom? Uh, is I'm a big fan of this climb. I've been to the Vontu before. I was there when Chris Froome had to run up the, the mountain after they crashed into the back of a, a uh, camera motorbike. Um, I'm going to say this quickly because I know that you're going to start groaning. Um, that's This stage is built for a certain Roman Bardet who is not here at this Tour de France. <laughs> uh, excellent on the climbs. Excellent on the downhills. Maybe not no, not great on the hilltop, you know, the, the summit finishes anymore. But when there's a downhill afterwards, he can fly. And that's exactly what we have on this stage. Tom, it's been a while since we've had uh, a little dramatic reading on this podcast. But if you don't mind, I'm going to read something from Jeremy Whittle's Vontu, uh, Sacrifice and Suffering on the Giant of Provence. Uh, it's very much an ode to the mountain, his experiences on the mountain, the likes of Eddie Merckx, who's won there, Chris Froome, who's won there, um, a certain... Armstrong, who has won there. Uh, do we want to say his name? Too late now. Nah, too late now. Uh, anyway, this is what Jeremy Whittle says in a very poetic language about Monvontu. Monvontu is the final Alp, the last peak before the pines give way to the arid thickets of Mackey and eventually the salted humidity of the Bouche du Rhône and the Mediterranean. Vontu is the last giant ripple in a rumpled geological quilt. It exists in otherworldly isolation, an aberration of nature, a child's fantasy mountain of strange flora and fauna, dark forests and wild animals, eerie deserts and astral winds, topped off with a cartoonish meteorological, meteorological, I knew I was going to stumble at this one, meteorological observatory that looks like Tintin's rocket to the moon. It has a schizophrenic, willful climate that can be bestial, hateful, and brutal. It is a climate so severe that it has brought Tour de France champions to tears and delirium, as both Fignon and Kubler testified. Most notoriously, it can kill, and does so on an alarmingly regular basis. There are many cliches used to describe an ascent of the Vontu. I like to think of it as cathartic, liberating, cleansing, redemptive. For others, however, it is, by turns, forbidding, monstrous, diabolical, and murderous. Tom, how does that, what, what mental state does that put you in for Monvontu on Wednesday? Certainly very evocative, isn't it? Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's better written than anything I could have come up with, but it pretty much sums up, I will always associate the Monvontu with Tom Simpson and, and his death on the mountain. Um, rather than some of the more famous pictures, it, it, there is something about it because he talks about the isolation as well. It is this mountain on its own that just appears out of nowhere, and yeah, he does really seem to get across just this fearsome reputation that it has. Because like, you know, other climbs are just as difficult, are but you don't talk about the Tourmalet or Alpe d'Huez the same way you do Mont Ventoux, and 
it's hard to say why. I mean, everyone knows why, but it's hard to put into words. And that's a very, very good attempt at it there. I think it's because, and I'm going to use the word folklore, but folklore in a very real way that it happened. The history of Tom Simpson keeling over and dying on Monvontu back in the late 60s. Um, it's just a brutal, brutal climb. And what he talks about there with all the deaths on it, isn't referring exclusively to cyclists. I mean, you have a lot of deaths with cars descending it that crash, um, hikers who get caught in the heat uh, high up, um, older cyclists who kind of just go too deep. Uh, yeah. It's when it emerges, when the, the climb emerges from the trees and you're in this moonscape and there's no protection from the heat, there's no protection from the wind. You've got the Mistral blowing up from the south there. Um, that's what makes the Vontu so feared in the peloton. And I think that hopefully, especially the way that this tour is being ridden with how relentlessly attacking everybody is being, we will see a lot of carnage on that mountain. Hopefully not so much that, you know, people's lives and health are brought uh, into a... I'm not expecting anything like that these, these days. I think so, they'll be careful, but I yeah. think there'll be some mad breakaway that's really going to go for it on that stage. Double ascent as well. It's harsh, that, isn't it? Double yeah. ascent. All of that, and they send you up it twice. <laughs> uh, um, be yeah, 100%. Other than that, we've got Andorra a week today on Sunday. A very hilly stage, but it's kind of preceded by a few flat ones. So the riders should be feeling okay, comparatively so. Um, home roads for a lot of the riders. I, I'm going to put my uh, tipping reputation on the line here and say that that is one for Simon Yates. Um, and that's the only bit of tipping I'm going to give because last time I did that, uh, it completely destroyed Roglic's GC hopes and perhaps his hopes of ever winning a Tour de France. So uh, I'm not going to be doing that anymore. Um, Tom, have you got any final final words to say on this this coming week or the week that we've just we've just viewed? Uh, no, not. Not, not that I haven't said before. Uh, yeah, you're right. That Andorra stage would be very exciting. You know, I love the Pyrenees. I can't wait for them to get down to Po. Um, but no, not not too much else to say. Uh, I'm just yeah excited for the three or four Mark Cavendish victories that are coming on the flat in the coming weeks. Um, when we inevitably get over overly excited and overly hyped about Mark Cavendish's chances of beating a certain record, where can people find what we'd like to put online? They can find us. That was quite a clumsy way to say it, but do your thing, Tom. Yeah, made sense, sorry. They can find us on Twitter or Insta at TTPDCST, TT Podcast, with all the vowels taken out. Same as it was last week, same as it's been the last 30 weeks. In any case, we will be teaming up again in a week's time, the next rest day. I'll be back in the UK midway through my uh, government-enforced quarantine. So very much looking forward to having a conversation with just about anyone by that point, I reckon. I have no doubts that we'll have a lot more narratives to, uh, to follow and dissect in this Tour de France. Until then, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, and we will speak to you very soon. Enjoy the next week. Bye.